Welcome to The Bulb, a podcast shedding light on gendered violence. In each edition, we'll explore aspects of this violence. What is thought about it, what we know about it, or what is yet to be revealed. The Bulb is a podcast series brought to you by the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Thank you for joining us as we share knowledge to improve the lives of women and their children. Today, I'm joined by Shay Leggett-Cook from Uniting Care Communities, Queensland. And Shay, welcome to The Bulb. And I believe you're going to share with listeners today some of your perspectives on the topic of, of working with men. So it's great to have you with us today. Thanks very much, Colleen. It's great to join you here on The Bulb. And yeah, really pleased um, and excited for our conversation. Wonderful. So, Shay, I wonder if you could begin by just telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your role. Sure. So, my my role with Uniting Care is Principal Advisor for Research and Evaluation, and I'm located within the Family and Disability Services area of Uniting Care. Um, Uniting Care is a very large organisation but also has hospitals and aged care services. Um, Family and disability uh, support is the the smallest part of Uniting Care, but by far the most diverse. So as the principal advisor, I provide um, support right across our suite of programs um, around evidence-based practice, um, around uh, research, including requests that we receive from external researchers wanting us to support what they're doing. Usually it involves recruiting clients. Um, but also developing our own um, research projects and partnerships and evaluating our own programs, which is something that we have um, moved into much more strongly in the last few years is is actually, you know, building that own capacity um, to do research and evaluation ourselves. Thanks, Shay. And that's obviously how we came to know you because we've been working with you through um, CQ University. So because we're exploring this theme of working with men and picking up on your point about research, why do you think there seems to be such an increased uh, interest in this whole area of working with perpetrators, perpetrator interventions, working with men Mm. in general who have used violence? Mm. Um, Look, I think that... There have been programs to that that have worked with men um, for quite some time. You know, I think it's it's forty years or so, even in Australia. Um, but I think it's it's been it's been very much underfunded and, and not really seen um, often as a legitimate part of the domestic and family violence support system, um, because I think that most of the focus has been on victim support, and um, that's in terms of of, of services um, as well as research funding. Um, and rightly so, that that should have taken the, the focus of our um, attention all of this time. Um, but I think that in general, across the human services sector, there's been a shift towards um, uh, trying to move away from crisis all of the time and trying to work more into the prevention and early intervention space. So this is a, something that we're seeing right across the board um, and within domestic and domestic and family violence, um, there's been this gradual awareness that if we want to prevent further violence from happening, then we must work with men. We must work with um, the perpetrators who are choosing to use violence and uh, address their behaviour. But so just in the last few years, there has been increasing attention on these programs. But I think one of the interesting things is 
where government has decided to, to, to make some investment in delivering these programs. At the same time, the sector has been quite hampered by a lack of evidence. Um, there has been research over the years, but until quite recently, there's been very little consensus about um, the outcomes that these programs are aiming to achieve and how you measure those outcomes in a robust manner. So while there have been bits and pieces of evidence, there's been very little consensus about what works um, and very little local research too about what works in an Australian context with Australian men. Um, and alongside this, there's been some ongoing fears around, you know, um, the risk of these programs and the potential that, um, that these programs might teach men um, how to use violence in more subtle and more coercive ways. Um, it helps them potentially with their image management if they if they know what language to use. So, um, so I think that there has been quite a lot of mistrust of these programs historically. Um, but with this focus now on early intervention and with research starting to pick up, I think that the programs have become um, legitimised. Um, but we, we do know that there is a lot more investment needed in terms of building the evidence base for effectiveness. Um, there's still a lot that we don't know. Thanks, Shay. And speaking of evaluation, and I mentioned earlier the partnership that we've had with, with CQ University. Mm -hmm. Today you're going to share the story of the evaluation that you've undertaken of behaviour change programs within your organisation specifically. Could you share with listeners what the study design involved and how you very deliberately embraced a participatory approach to this work? So there were... Um, there were probably three main things that um, really informed our approach to the research. Um, the first would be our own principles at Uniting Care in terms of how we want to do research. Secondly um, is around, um, uh, I think, what, uh, what is effective in terms of building knowledge within the domestic and family violence sector. Um, and then the third one is around um, how to produce uh, robust evidence with, within the men's behaviour change space. So I'll talk about each of them in turn. Um, first of all, in terms of our own principles, um, we, we have made a, a really conscious um, effort to articulate the kind of research that we want to do and the kind of partners that we want to work with. And um, all of our research that we do um, is very practice focused. I think in an NGO setting, um, often research is used for advocacy and, you know, we, we hope that some of our research will fulfill that purpose as well. But our number one reason for doing research and evaluation and making that investment of our time and resources is to strengthen our own practice, uh, to find out if what we're doing is effective and to look for ways to improve. Um, so, and we know that in order to actually make that change in our practice, it's important that our staff are involved right from the very start. Um, so, we have a strong focus on co-design, um, ensuring that the voices and experiences of practitioners are in the room right from the start when we're designing research and evaluation, um, and that that practice wisdom is really listened to. And I think in our evaluation, this in itself um, uh, is, is an innovation um, when Annabelle Taylor and Sue Carswell, who've led the research um, from CQ University's side, 
um, when they did their initial literature review, one of the things that they found was that a lot of the research and evaluation that had been done actually didn't directly include practitioner voices. So it's, it's really important that we have done that. Um, we want our staff to be involved all the way through so that they have a sense of ownership over the findings because we know that at the end of it, uh, it's going to make them more receptive to, um, to doing the, the change work of um, making those adjustments um, to practice that we have identified are needed. Um, so uh, through the research, we had co-design workshops at the very start that involved all of our practitioners, our facilitators, our women's advocates, our frontline managers, our regional managers, um, and it also involved external stakeholders. This was another, another uh, conscious decision that we made, um, knowing that in the domestic and family violence sector that women and children's safety is improved when services are integrated together. So those, those interagency relationships I think are essential to doing um, not just, you know, providing good support, but doing good research. So we included um, key stakeholders in those co-design workshops. So um, uh, people from police, uh, from probation and parole, from child safety, from local women's, um, uh, women's support agencies and that sort of thing. Um, we also had four co-design workshops um, because we deliver programs um, uh, in several locations across the state. So it was important that we actually went to those locations so that we could engage um, effectively with local stakeholders. Um, and then through the research, our staff continued to be involved in the data collection, um, supporting data collection with both men run going through the program and uh, women who were uh, being supported by our women's advocate. Um, we uh, then involve staff in other ways in terms of having access to the preliminary findings and being able to give feedback about that. Um, and then at the moment, we're at the stage of running knowledge translation activities um, for our staff. I guess another key part of the design of the evaluation um, was that we wanted it to be a longitudinal. Um, a lot of evaluations in the men's behaviour change space just look at initial outcomes pre and post program. And um, although it was a lot more expensive to fund a longer evaluation, we know that effectiveness, that it's important to look at effectiveness further down the track. Have men been able to sustain any changes that they saw during that initial um, interaction with the program? Um, so we're actually at that stage at the moment um, with the evaluation where our longitudinal findings are being analysed and written up. And we're really looking forward to, to seeing what changes were sustained and where we can improve. How very exciting. So the suspense is on at the moment. Sure is. So Shay, what did you learn about Pine Outcomes and their relationship to how your organisation delivers its programs? What have you already found and were there any surprises in there? So at the moment, we just have those initial program outcomes that were measured immediately before men started to attend group sessions and then after they completed the group sessions. But what we found was that there were improvements in men's understanding of the impact that their behaviour had on their partners and children. 
um, we found that there were increases in their self-awareness about why they behaved in certain ways at certain times. Um, there appeared to be improvements in their emotional re- regulation and their communication skills and in uh, an overall improvement in, uh, I guess, what we would term respectful relationships. So this was promising, but remembering that our program is just 16 weeks of, um, of sessions. It's a two-hour weekly session. Um, so why we will we would say that these initial outcomes are, are positive, where we, we can still only be cautiously optimistic that our program actually is a, having um, a meaningful impact on men's behaviour. I think our longitudinal findings will, will give us some, some richer information. Um, our evaluation didn't just seek men's feedback about changes. It also sought feedback from women about what they had observed changing um, in their partners or ex-partners. And the findings there were a bit more mixed. Um, So some women felt safer and felt that the program had contributed to their improved safety. Um, Some didn't feel safer and um, had to use other uh, legal measures such as domestic, uh, domestic violence orders in order to improve their safety. And quite a few women said that um, that the changes that they had seen weren't enough, like they improved things a bit, um, but that most men really did need longer-term support or more tailored support to really help them um, make changes in their behaviour. So there are really no surprises for us in that, um, that men in general were more optimistic about what they thought had changed, whereas the feedback from women, which is so important in this space, uh, was was more mixed. Uh, we also had a process evaluation component to the project, which looks at issues of service delivery and implementation. Um, would you like me to talk about those findings as well? Yes. So I might we might just stop there um so i'll just i'll start by again by saying um uh i'll ask a question like so shay did you do a process evaluation as well and then you can maybe Mm. talk to that um so um okay shay i understand you also did a process evaluation would you tell listeners a little bit more about that please so in contrast to the outcomes component of the project which looks at what has changed for the clients who are interacting with the program. Um, The process evaluation component looked at issues of service delivery and implementation. Uh, So for that component, there were interviews with our staff as well as our stakeholders to look at from their different perspectives what their experiences were of the program. And and these findings are really quite interesting and I believe that there's a lot that we that we uh, discovered that we will be able to respond to. Um, we found that um, that the woman's advocate role or the domestic and family violence advocate role um, is a very challenging role to deliver. And this is something that is experienced quite a lot right across um, the, the men's behaviour change um, uh, sector, that the funding for these programs in general is quite tight and for the women's advocate role in particular, it's very tight. So 
for some of our advocates, um, the level of demand was quite high compared to what they were actually funded to, to deliver, which meant that sometimes they had to focus on the highest risk, risk cases and, um, and often weren't able to provide as much support as they wanted to to all of the women. Um, so that's something that uh, is, is quite challenging, um, but we know that that, uh, that role is essential. It's often um, the, the first time that a woman is linked with support services or has an opportunity to find out what supports might be available for, for her. So it's a really critical role to get right and, and one that really needs to be strengthened. Um, we learned that we had a lot of trouble with retaining men in the program. And we even saw this with the evaluation in terms of the amount of baseline data we were able to collect compared to the amount of men who actually provided that post-intervention um, uh, data. Uh, there was about a 50% turnover, roughly, with some site-to-site -site variations. Um, so again, this is, this is a real problem um, and that is not unique to Uniting Care's programs. Um, so I guess for us, we've started thinking a lot about, well, how can we improve how men engage with the program? How can we support them um, to engage? How can we understand the reasons why they drop out and help them to address those things? Um, we found that there was a, quite a lack of focus on the needs of children in the program, which again, I think is a gap um, within men's programs and potentially even right across the domestic and family violence sector. We know that we're not great at really tuning in to children's experiences of what's happened and understanding from their perspective what they might need to heal from being exposed to domestic and family violence. Um, it's, there's a lot of focus on the mother and, um, and supporting, supporting the mother. And I think the children are just seen as part of that unit rather than clients in their own right. So that's something that I think needs a lot more development. Um, and we have some ideas about how we're going to shift that. Um, there were a lot of findings around our workforce capability. And again, this is a, this is a, what we found here um, is, is reflected right across the sector. Um, it's difficult to recruit staff who have the required qualifications and experience into these roles, and it's particularly difficult to recruit qualified and experienced male facilitators for the programs. Um, and even if you can recruit, it's difficult to hold on to people because there is such a high demand for highly qualified facilitators, so people do tend to move around. Um, and in terms of our facilitators, uh, one of the interesting findings I think was that um, that the work of facilitating these programs is actually very complex and very challenging. Um, male and female co-facilitators, which is the required um, and, and uh, best practice way to deliver these programs, um, does mean that uh, you need to model respectful gender relationships with your co-facilitator at the same time as facilitating a group where a lot of the people in the room might not want to be there and are resistant to the ideas, where you have to constantly be on the lookout for um, potential collusion. Um, it's very complex work, that co-gendered co-facilitation. And... Um, 
our, our staff talked about um, uh, the need for a specific training and this sort of thing, um, uh, the need for uh, quality supervision uh, that helped them identify and talk through and work on building those relationships and that sense of trust because that's so necessary when you walk into that room and start to work with men. And I guess another thing, and again, this is another thing that as a sector we know is a problem, is that our programs have a lot of difficulty responding to the individual needs of men. Um, it's a group program and we have a curriculum, and uh, but a lot of men need other support. They need mental health support. They need drug and alcohol support. Um, a lot of men have experienced um, trauma in their own lives and need support processing all of that. And it's very limited what we can do in a group situation to, to provide that one-on-one -on -one support that a lot of men need. So that's a challenge. Um, and, and one of the things that we want to work on is how can we improve the way we do referrals um, to support men to link up with other, with other services and at the same time, the programs aren't great at responding to the needs of diverse groups, um, cultural diversity, um, sexuality and gender diversity, um, age diversity, socioeconomic diversity. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a one-size-fits-all program, um, but we know that men aren't one-size-fits-all. And again, it's, it's just that's just one, an, an added complexity for our facilitators to manage when they're in the room. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned some minutes ago, and that was around the notion that you're looking into knowledge translation. And I believe it's very important to your organisation. So, yes, knowledge translation is very important to us as an organisation. But at the same time, just as a disclaimer, I suppose, um, we are, it's, it's an ongoing process for us to really understand what knowledge translation is and how best to do it within our programs. So I guess just to take a step back from the, that to start with, um, we know that it can take quite some time for research evidence to find its way into practice. And there have been studies, particularly in a health um, environment that suggests it's between, you know, 10 to 15 years for research evidence to find its way into measurable changes in clinical practice. Um, so we know that research and evaluation by itself, you know, that report that we produce at the end of a project by itself, that isn't going to change anything unless it's taken up and applied. So we've really tried to to cultivate this idea of knowledge translation as being part of the research process because it's often not very rarely actually seen as part of the research process. It's very rarely funded. It's all of the data collection and analysis that we fund and we kind of forget about the, how to use it at the other end. So, yeah, so I, it's important to our organisation because as a service provider, it goes back to the reasons why we're doing this research in the first place. And it's not just to, you know, to be able to say whether we think our program is effective or not. It's partly that. It's not just to make a contribution to the knowledge base. You know, it is partly that too. But the number one reason for why we, we invest and take this step to, to be involved in research and, and evaluation is to improve what we do. So it's very much that continuous improvement function. 
Um, so for this particular project, the the foundation that we had laid with our staff in terms of co-design and involvement of staff all the way through did mean that by the time we got to the end of being able to share some findings, um, there was quite a strong commitment to the project and where it might take it take us. Um, so I think that in some ways you, you start thinking about knowledge translation right from the very start and, and you build that into the way you collect your data and you involve people. Um, when it comes to knowledge translation, though, uh, and when it came to me thinking about, well, how are we going to do this for our staff? Um, there wasn't a lot in the research literature that I could find that would really guide me. Uh, a lot of the research that has been done focuses on how researchers um, communicate their findings to different audiences. So that's the knowledge translation part. It's how do you how do you chunk down your findings and communicate it to policymakers? How do you chunk it down and communicate it to practitioners? You know, there's different, different messages for different audiences, which is absolutely um, part of it. I'm, I know it's part of it. But I think that approach still relies on the end user picking up that message and doing the work to do something with it. So we wanted to be part of working with our staff to do something with the research. Um, and to help get this moving, uh, we decided to run a series of workshops with our staff, knowledge translation workshops. Uh, it all had to be online because of travel restrictions. Um, but we, we opened by really just sharing with our staff this idea of involving them in the change process, reminding them how involved they had been up until that point. And we wanted the process to be a, a way of helping them to engage with the findings and reflect on what those findings might mean for them in their program. And our staff really enjoyed the process. We had fantastic attendance right the way through the workshops. Um, and we kind of led them down a pathway of, of drip feeding bits of research findings and having lots of breakout rooms for discussion. The ideas that our staff came up with around what we could do um, were quite were quite wonderful, and we made a conscious decision to ask our staff to try not to be limited by our current funding because we know that it's tough. We know that it's really tough, but we wanted our staff to really think broadly and creatively, and not always be limited by what they thought was possible because of our resourcing. Um, so through that process, um, we were able to identify seven key areas that we wanted to work on as an organisation. And in our final knowledge translation workshop, we were able to um, ask our staff to identify, you know, the, the, the quick wins or the things that we could do now, the things that were within our ability to influence now. So they weren't necessarily, you know, life-changing huge things they were often quite small tweaks um, but because we know that they were anchored in the evidence that we've developed we know that these these things are going to make a difference to the things that our that our program needs in terms of improvement and one of them if I can just give an example um, relates to the the issue that I raised before around the lack of focus on children and it is very difficult for us to think, well, how can, we, how can we actually do more in this space? And one of the things that we thought we could do is to start building more evidence about what it is that children actually need. 
So we have um, uh, redeveloped our Women's Advocate internal referral form, which used to have just one line of space um, where we could record what children might need in terms of support. We've now got much greater capacity in that form to identify the needs of each child, their demographics, their contact arrangements, their family relationships, the support options that are offered and whether they're taken up and why. And we believe that by collecting this information and aggregating it over time, we'll be in a much stronger position to advocate for specific supports that children might, might need um, and pathways, um, pathways forward. In addition, we thought another really simple thing that we could do is do a mapping process for each location of our program to look at what supports are available in the broader community for children that we could refer to or strengthen our referrals to. And other ideas are things like a checklist for staff to make sure that at certain key points in, in their engagement with both the man and the, the woman that we are checking in with them about what children might need. So small things to start with, but, but these are all changes. These are all positive changes that are anchored in, in, our, in our own evidence. Shay, what I've heard, I'm thinking about using the word empowering. I imagine for many staff, this whole process has been an empowering one. And I found your whole, your whole interview so illuminating. And that brings me to the end of this edition of The Bulb. Because we're all about shining light, would you please share your thoughts on what you see ahead in terms of future work in this area? Um. I think that there is a lot more work that needs to happen in this space, a lot more. You know, there's been, the last few years have been busy, but I think that um, the sector knows and I think government knows that a lot more work is needed, a lot more investment and research and evaluation is needed. Um, so I think then in the next few years, we will see more research funding available, that we will see more um, pilot programs available um, to test ideas for what might work. Um, I think there'll be a continued focus on how we can strengthen the evidence base and practice in this, in this area. Um, and I think as a sector, we also know, as you said before, that a lot of this is around empowerment of staff, empowerment of practitioners. And um, I believe that that will continue to be a really important focus um, for us as an organisation and the sector more broadly. So I think we'll see a lot more training for staff, a lot more specialised training staff a lot more communities of practice and that sort of thing popping up and I think that we're going to see um, a lot more focus on how we can change this one size fits all type program uh, we are already seeing um, programs that are tailored to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and they often have to work in quite a different way to be culturally appropriate and effective um, we're seeing programs targeting um, members of the uh, LGBTI community, which again, there are differences there that are really important to consider in how we deliver these sorts of programs. And the other area of real growth um, that I can see is working with young men or adolescent um, uh, teenage boys around those, um, those early early signs of, of that they may use violence and a lot of that will intersect with that um, supporting young people to heal from their own exposure to, to domestic and family violence and if I can just give a, a, a plug for Uniting Care 
we are also piloting a program that we have designed ourselves, um, the Men's Sustaining Change Program. And this program uh, has been prompted by our own evaluation and that finding very clearly that came through from women that so many men needed longer-term support to really cement the, their attitudinal and behavioural shifts. Um, but it's also reflected in, in other studies that have been done around this need for longer-term support. So our Men's Sustaining Change Programme, um, which has only just started, is trying to provide an avenue for that. Um, it's not, it's not a program that's suitable for high-risk men. It is a program that is suitable for men who have accepted accountability for their behaviour and are committed to further work um, in their journey towards nonviolence. It's a program that's adaptable so that it can focus on some of the common needs that might come up through the group, but it continues to work on our core curriculum around behaviour change and understanding the impact of domestic and family violence. And the other thing that it tries to do is really cultivate um, the idea of men holding each other to account for their behaviour. So that idea of pro-social peer networks is very central to the group. And um, I'm really excited that we have decided to fund a two-year pilot of this program and also alongside that, a two-year evaluation uh, that will be led by Dr. Sue Carswell from the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. Shay, this has been such an interesting conversation. I've so appreciated your time and you've been so um, generous and comprehensive in your responses. Thank you so much for joining us on The Bulb today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb Enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1800 737 732 through 1800RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.